He is the light in the darkness. And we're moving towards that time of the year when we celebrate that most critical of events. I believe it's the centerpiece of our Christian calendar, Good Friday. When to folks, things looked their darkest when he was crucified. And yet that's the event in which Jesus did all the work that gets us forgiven and brings us into light. So um, April 15th, Good Friday. Good Friday, Easter, Christmas. In our culture, we've got it Christmas at the top, Easter and Good Friday. But then the light. When he rose from the dead and demonstrated that everything he did upon the cross got accomplished. Absolutely. So join us on Easter and we'll have a couple of services and uh, celebrate how he is our light. Ukraine, challenges in our own community, challenges in each of our lives. The solution is always seeing the glory of Jesus. And glory is one of those words that I think can be hard to define. I think it's easier to recognize it than sometimes it is to define it. It's when we feel it. And we see something and we go, oh my. That is inspiring. Now the key to life is seeing the glory of Jesus. And the privilege I have most Sundays is to be a representative where my ultimate goal is to help you all see the glory of Jesus. You talk about an opportunity and a privilege and you talk about feeling inept. I'm going to give you a picture of the glory of Jesus. Now, it is God's plan to do that in and through all of us. And John has been trying to help us see that as he launches into this book. Back in the first chapter, the 14th verse, and the word, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became a flesh, born of Mary. We know that story. And dwelt among us. God dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. His love, his grace, his power, his forgiveness, his compassion, his mercy. We have gone, oh my. Glory as of the only son, completely unique glory. Not going to see this magnificent glory from anyone else or any other thing. Glory as of the only son from the father, full, full of grace and truth. This is the answer to our challenges. This is the answer to our problems. Here's where we find meaning and joy in life. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. How do we get that grace? We look at Jesus and we see him for who he is. And oh my, he is awesome 
inspiring. That's what this book is about. John giving us a picture of Jesus in an attempt to reveal his glory. Now, we're going to look at a story today. It's a very familiar story. And in this story, we're going to get some glimpses of his glory. That's my hope. That we will leave here as inept and as, as limited as I am, that somehow through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will all hear going, we saw Jesus just a little more clearly. And we're going to leave with a little stronger faith and a little happier than when we arrived. On the third day, since he's last been writing, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother then said to the servants, but do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and, uh, some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely and then the poor wine. But you, you're a genius. You have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee and manifested his glory. And here's the point. When we see Jesus' glory, they saw his glory and his disciples believed in him. Father, that's our prayer today. It's our prayer every day. It's our prayer every Sunday. Uh, we can say intellectually that you, your son, have limitless, infinite glory. But sometimes, Father, in this condition we find ourselves right now, it is hard to see. So I ask that your spirit would do what we really can't do on our own apart from you. Help us to see the glory of Jesus a little more fully. Ah, Father, help us to see it. We know this story. Most of us could tell this story. But I pray, Father, though these words are familiar to so many of us, you'll give us a glimpse of Jesus that encourages our minds and our hearts. And we will leave here with a stronger faith than when we arrived. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus revealed glory in this incident. And I'm going to pull it apart. I, there are other ways, but I'm going to pull it apart. I, I see three primary ways where, where John, as he writes this, is trying to reveal this glory of Jesus. The first is in his response to a mother, his mother. Now, if you were following along and reading that, this is a tough one to find. But it's there. Mary makes a request of him. Son, will you please 
help me help these friends. Oh, come on. His mother. Will you help me help these friends? I think his response, and we're going to pull that apart, is not what we would expect. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Undoubtedly friends, maybe family, we don't know, but Mary's connected there somehow, and Mary, for some reason, is taking some responsibility to solve this. John doesn't give us the details. Uh, uh, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, you can tell from the way John writes this story, this is more than an FYI for Jesus. She's saying to Jesus, I'd like you to help me help these people with a problem. Now, for most of us, I don't think we have to go, oh, too far to imagine what we would expect. Oh, mother, I love you. It would be my delight. To... There's the picture we have of Jesus. Now, is she asking him to do a miracle? I don't think necessarily. We don't know what happened to Joseph, but the last account we have of him is when Jesus is 12. So she's most assuredly a widow. He's the oldest. Mary and Jesus were tight. Here's what I can absolutely convince you. He was a better son than anybody I have known. And yet there's something here for us when he responds in a way that I don't think we would ever expect. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman. Now, I don't think the tone here is a derisive as it can sometimes be in our culture. Woman, leave me alone. But unmistakably distancing himself from his mother. He's talking to her now, not as his mother. What does this have to do with me? Now, if I'm Mary, I would say something like this. You're my son. I brought you into this world. I'd like help from you solving this problem. Is it not clear? What's this have to do with me? You're my son. We've worked together. I'd like to help them. And everything I've known about you for these roughly 30 years would tell me that you should want to help them. Now, this text this week got me thinking about my mom. My mom died 20 years ago this last January. And I think of her often, I have this picture in my top right-hand desk drawer, so I look at it just about every day. Now, my mother was one of those folks who had less guile than most people in the world. You can almost call her, I think, naive. She just 
mercy, generosity. She lived for her kids and grandkids. The closest I ever remember her getting to disciplining me was a couple of times she said, wait till your father gets home. (laughs) Now that did get my attention and stopped me. Now my siblings kid me as being the favorite of my mother. She denied it till she died, but it was true. (laughs) Uh, I'm the oldest in our family, but I'm not the firstborn. My mom and dad lost a little boy named Brian at four days old. I'm Todd Brian. Help me understand once I got older and had kids why she tended to be particularly with me overprotective. Started to understand it. I got memories growing up. Every day when I come home from school, every day, walked home during grade school, took the bus in junior high and senior high. We had a two-story home. I'd walk in the front door. The door was always open, and there'd be cookies or brownies or cinnamon rolls or something sitting on the kitchen table. We had two chairs next to the table, and she'd be sitting there. Sometimes I would sit down and visit with her a little bit, Sometimes I just go on with my life. When I did visit, I look back with some regret that I didn't spend more time visiting with her. Love my mom. We talked when we lived in Seattle. There were a couple of times. Now, my mom, if old, you older folks, if you know who Edith Bunker is, that's a little bit of a picture of my mother. And I remember in Seattle a couple of times talking to her, and she'd be going, and I wanted to go get some, so I just put the phone down. This is before cell phones. Go get it, come back, and I had not missed a beat. Here's the point. I was not a perfect son. But I never once talked to my mother like Jesus does his here. Never once. Never once did I try to distance myself from her and our relationship as a mother. Never once did I say, don't bother me. (laughs) So the question for us is, why? Why does Jesus give this unexpected response? Because I believe it's significant. Now just be assured, I am 100% convinced Jesus is a way better son than me. So so don't be wrestling with that. And I think we get it in the answer here. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And here's his explanation, and it's pretty short. But my hour has not yet come. Now, I think this is a literary device used by John. If you're reading the book for the first time, you go, what hour? What's the hour represent? Now, as you go through and read the book, he's going to reference the hour several times. Anybody want to suggest what is the hour of Christ's reference? His crucifixion, what we're going to celebrate on Good Friday. But here's what he's saying to his mother that was important for his mother to understand. Though you physically brought me into this world... I'm here ultimately to do my heavenly father's business. 
you go to Luke 2, the story when Jesus is at 12, they're in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover and Mary and Joseph leave. I don't know how you do this without noticing your son's with them. But Jesus is behind in the temple. And they come back and they're fascinated with how he's interacting with the priests and the rabbis there. And yet when they're leaving, Mary goes, why did you do this to us? And Jesus said to her at 12 years old, you should have known I was be here doing my father's business. Now Luke tells us Mary and Joseph really didn't understand that. Here's what he's trying to make clear to Mary. Based upon what he's going to do, do and, and what he's going to accomplish. I'm here to fulfill my heavenly father's mission. Even though you're my mother, you got no special privileges when it comes to this kingdom thing. You're going to need to trust me just like everybody else. You're going to need to lean on me just like everybody else. Now, he takes care of his mother at the crucifixion. Remember that. He sends her with John the Apostle and John with her. He's a good, good son. But he needs her, all his siblings, all his disciples, everybody to understand this. There's forgiveness that comes through Jesus, but it doesn't matter if we grew up in the church. doesn't matter if we had faithful parents. doesn't matter if we're a Jew by ethnicity. It does not matter. The gospel's available to all, but everybody's got to come to Jesus on their own, individually. No special privileges no matter our past. That's what he's trying to reveal here. Does Jesus love his mother? Is he a great son? He's the best son that has ever been. But ultimately, he's devoted to, committed to fulfilling what his heavenly father. And then he turns water into wine. The centerpiece of this. I was turning water into wine. On the third day there was a wedding at Canaan, Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with the disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And he said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now I love this. I was talking about this with my wife. And she said what she loves is Mary at least stays in the conversation. She said, we just have one son. We have three girls, but one son. And she said, if my son said something like that to me, I'm like, well, fine. You can come and find me and apologize later. <laughs> but you got to love Mary. Don't know what she expected, but she just said, do whatever he tells you. But she stayed in that conversation. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, but people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine till now. I think what happens here is filled with powerful symbolism. First thing, this is water used for purification, not drinking. 
This is the water they would have had been using for religious symbolism of being cleaned. Been roughly 1,300 years since Moses ascended to Mount Sinai and gave us the Ten Commandments and then we go back there and read uh, 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 Leviticus and them. There is a boatload of rules and commands and processes they're supposed to follow. All to point ultimately to the necessary need for a Savior, the Lamb that's going to come, and Jesus, that guy, that, that fulfills all of that stuff so you won't need it anymore. This isn't drinking water. This is water that has religious significance. And it gets changed. You're not going to use it anymore for purification. Now... It's become wine, this symbol of the kingdom, this symbol of God's glory, this symbol of the great party we're going to spend eternity having with God. It's filled to the brim. We're not going to keep some of those rules. Now, you remember after Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter and Paul and the Judaizers, if you go back through Acts, they're wrestling. Well, we should keep some of the Jewish rules. No, they've been changed and they've been transformed through this Jesus. Those Jewish rites, Jesus came to fulfill this stuff. And when he came to pay for our sins, they are paid in their entirety. Not one thing that we should be doing. And that water, which I believe represents the Mosaic law with which the Jews have been living for 1,300 years gets turned into wine. Now, as we talk about this, we've come a long way. I remember in junior high reading this story and being a little bit bewildered because I grew up in a home where beverage alcohol, you didn't drink it. I am not here to promote the consumption of beverage alcohol. But I remember I thinking about seventh, eighth grade reading the story going, Jesus did what with the water? He did what? Now, in junior high, thinking through spiritual issues was not that important to me, so I just let it go for decades. These Jewish rites, that which came to point to the Savior, now is no longer needed. The third way we see Jesus' glory is in his gracious, generous provision. The extravagant supply. It's big. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. That's 20 gallons. Stone. Going to keep it a little more pure. Not just clay jars, but this were rites of purification. So can you imagine six up to 50% bigger than this? 
I don't care who you are or how big a party you have, that is a lot of wine. This is a boatload of wine. You're going to be able to have plenty of wine. Jesus loves to meet our needs, and he's not stingy. He's generous. That's a lot of wine. The unexpected witnesses. We live in a world where if you're a celebrity, you get all kinds of privileges. You know, it's all the people that are famous that have all the money that get stuff free. It's the way the world works. Jesus was born in obscurity. Few shepherds get to find out. John the Baptist, he's really a nobody. This first recorded miracle, who are the people that get to see it? We're at a party. There are guests, there are friends, there are families, and there are celebrations going on. And there's a group of people who are doing all the work so that everybody else can party. On the socioeconomic strata, on the cultural popularity measure, They were at the bottom. This is part of how I love about how God works. Who actually got to see the miracle? Nobody at the party celebrating the party. Just those folks doing the work. Don't miss this. God intends the gospel for everybody. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they, the servants, took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. <sighs> Love the way God works. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. How do we know about this story? We got it from John. Where did John get it from? Or from whoever heard it? The servants talked about it. They got to experience it. And they shared what happened. And the word spread. And the disciples end up believing the disciples of Jesus. Think about this. Because if I'm one of those, likely Peter, I'm like, so you do the first miracle, you called us to follow you, and you don't even show us the doggone miracle? We got to hear about it from these servants? What were you thinking, Jesus? And yet how God works. 
And the groom is not humiliated, but lavishly provided for. As the father of three girls, I'm thinking the custom back then about marriage is not a bad one. It was the groom who was in charge of making the wedding happen. It was the groom who was in charge of making this probably, for most folks, most significant celebration most of them are going to have in their lives. Who's responsible? The groom. When you want out of wine at the big party, who's the guy that I think is beyond embarrassed? Who's the guy that's going to be beyond humiliated? Who's the guy that's going to be shamed? You put on this big party and you didn't have enough wine? That love Jesus. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely in the poor wine. But you have... <laughs> Don't miss this. You've kept the good wine. Till... This is the guy running the party. At this point, he doesn't know what happened. The groom is messed up. But in time, the master of the ceremony is looking at the groom and going, oh, you killed it. Nice work. Oh, man, you are a great party thrower. Because Jesus turned the water into wine. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. That's the point. The groom messed up. More obvious to those who read John in the first century. The groom messed up. Eh, pretty much like all of us. I've been a husband 41 and a half years. The mess-ups I've made as a husband. My oldest daughter will turn 40 this summer. The mess-ups I've made as a dad. I've just offered to pay for all my kids' counseling. It's the least I can do. My role as a pastor, messed up. I don't know about you, but I've made lots of mistakes. As you read the book, he's going to provide salvation 
for that groom, for all those there, and for us. Relatively speaking, we could say, what's some wine? Fairly inconsequential in relationship to eternity and our forgiveness. But Jesus generously and graciously provided for him like he wants to do for all of us. That's who this Jesus is. He loves us. He wants to meet our needs. He wants to provide for us. He wants to take care of us. That's who he is. So I got three suggestions for you this week. Here's the first one. And this one really has nothing too directly to do with the sermon. But I'm giving it to you anyway. Connect with your mother. Text, phone call. Take her to coffee. If your mother's not alive, thank God for your mother. And maybe reach out to somebody else that might be a mother and encourage them. I wish I'd have spent more time talking with my mother. Thank Jesus for his provision of salvation. If you've read the book, you know where his greatest provision is our eternal life and our forgiveness through just simply trusting him. That's it. It's all ours. And then what do you need help with today? John mentioned earlier, we all got stuff. It could happen, and I've lived now just a little over six decades. I've still never met anybody that didn't have something that they were wrestling with. What is it? Take it to Jesus. He loves to help us. We thank him for that generous provision of salvation. He gave the guy wine. He cares about the details. He cares about the challenges. He cares about the issues with which we're wrestling because he loves us, he loves us, he loves us. He loves to take care of us. So I'm going to pause, just give you a little time and just say, Jesus, I love you. Would you help me with this? Jesus, I need your help. Let's talk to him.
Lord, we love you. And we're grateful for the relationship we share with you, for the joy, for the significance, for the meaning that comes in our walking with you. But this life is sometimes so challenging. Some of the challenges we can predict and some of the things, ah, they surprise us. Our prayer is that you would fill us with a sense of your love and of your grace and of your care. We ask you to see, help us see your glory more fully so that we might reach out to you even more quickly. We are right now when we face those challenges. Father, thanks for loving us. Thanks for sending Jesus into this world. Thank you for promising to care for us in every circumstance of life. Help us to see the grace, the generosity, and the glory of your Son more clearly, Father, more than anything else. That's what we desire, and that's what we ask.